1: Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken
2: sandwiches. But there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem
1: of a detour.
0: Welcome to the Peter King Podcast, where I try to tell you a little bit about football and a lot about life or something like that. This week, I'm going to preview the NFL scouting Combine. Got two experts, Daniel Jeremiah of NFL Network, and I've got Matt Miller, who's the NFL draft analyst for Bleacher Report. But first, a few words about New England Patriots owner Robert Kraft and the mess that he is in, along with the National Football League and Commissioner Roger Goodell. Kraft on Friday was accused by police in Jupiter, Florida, uh, to have frequented a... A massage parlor that the police believe is a den uh, of sex trafficking that involves several women from China who are in the United States illegally and were working as sex workers. Kraft, according to police, is on video um, participating in a sex act at least twice uh, in this establishment. So I think first we have to say exactly one of the things that we learned from the recent Jesse Smollett case uh, in Chicago, which is that let's not jump to conclusions. Let's wait and see what the evidence bears out um, in the case of Robert Kraft. And it could be that uh, he will not be guilty of this uh, of this crime. And there is clearly a presumption of innocence uh, associated in America with anyone uh, accused of a crime. However, I do want to point out what a difficult place this puts NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell and all of the, uh, basically all of the discipline czars inside 280 Park Avenue in New York for a very simple reason. I don't believe in the 12 and a half years that Roger Goodell has been the commissioner that he's ever dealt with a case anything like this. Now, you might say, well, a couple of years ago, Jerry Richardson was stripped of his team uh, after being accused of some sexual impropriety uh, when he was the owner of the Carolina Panthers. This is much, much different. Not the offense. I mean, the offense of Jerry Richardson was terrible uh, in pressuring uh, his employees uh, to do things apparently against their will and um, inside the Carolina Panthers organization. But the difference here is that when when this surfaced with Jerry Richardson, the owner of the Carolina Panthers, he immediately said, I'm going to sell the team. Nobody had to push him out of ownership. He sold the team. It was sold to a hedge fund manager named David Tepper, who now, owns the Carolina Panthers and Jerry Richardson has quietly gone away. And he's basically an invisible man in the Charlotte area now. This is different. I don't think you're going to see, even if Robert Kraft is found guilty in this case, I don't think you're going to see him wanting to give up this team willingly. He's 77 years old, but he's active every single day in the ownership of this team. He deals with Bill Bill Belichick on a daily basis. He calls Tom Brady his fifth son. Uh, He talks to him several times a week, even in the offseason, kisses him when he leaves him. I mean, he is in love with this football team. So now you ask yourself, so what can the NFL do and what would the NFL do? Roger Goodell is uh, is on record in his 12 and a half years as commissioner of saying that owners, coaches, employees of NFL teams will be held to a higher standard than players. And if we're talking about a crime, which some people might call a victimless crime, prostitution— But if we're talking about prostitution that includes sex workers, you know, who are there against their will, this is no victimless crime. This crime has a victim, and in this case, has several victims at this spa in Jupiter, Florida. So this is no victimless crime. And so what could the NFL do? I I think it is far too much. To suspect that the NFL would want to strip uh, the New England Patriots from Robert Kraft and, and uh, force him to sell this team, I, I don't think that uh, it will go that far, especially for an owner who uh, has done so many things in the community and, uh, and around America and even in Israel Um, he's a a benefactor of many causes, uh, you know, all over the world. Uh, So I I, I doubt sincerely that that will happen. But what I I do see happening is I would be surprised if Roger Goodell would not suspend Robert Kraft from the day-to-day operations of this team if he is found guilty. And again, if, if, if. I do think, though, that one of the things about Kraft that, I have seen very often. I've seen and heard stories of him writing checks uh, just uh, uh, almost in a in a very, very uh, reactionary way. And I mean that in a good way. Um, so I, I i would I would not be surprised to see him, if we go far down this road, to do something um, to benefit the fight against uh, human trafficking uh, to benefit. Uh, the fight against women working against their will as sex workers. Um, But again, we're getting way ahead of ourselves. We don't even know if Robert Kraft is guilty yet. I just will say that he's really put the NFL in a a bind because uh, it's going to be very, very difficult if he is guilty. It's going to be very difficult for Roger Goodell to give him a fine. The maximum fine that Goodell can give owners is $500,000. That is one-fourteenth of one percent of Robert Kraft's net worth, according to Forbes. And so having said all that, um, I think there's going to have to be some significant discipline against Kraft um, if he's found to have violated uh, these statutes in Florida. And I also think that uh, after the incident uh, involving Baltimore running back Ray Rice five years ago, where the NFL had a very, very light uh, sentence at first. They suspended Rice for two games and then amended that sentence to be an indefinite suspension after the video was seen where uh, he was seen punching his his fiancée, now wife, in an elevator in, in Atlantic City. I think it becomes very, very difficult for the NFL to give anything that would be deemed to craft as a slap on the wrist. Before we get to my conversation with Daniel Jeremiah, let me just remind you that NFL Network will be all over the scouting combine. They're going to have 50 hours of live combine coverage beginning today, Wednesday, February 27. As this podcast drops, there'll be 37 on-air figures for NFL Network. Now, NFL Network will have live coverage of the Combine from Friday through Monday, starting at 9 o'clock Eastern every morning. You'll have Rich Eisen and Daniel Jeremiah taking Mike Mayock's spot in the booth. They'll be live at Lucas Oil Stadium, and they'll be joined throughout the course of workouts by a cadre of excellent analysts. You'll also have a new wrinkle this year, NFL Network Network. We'll have Joe Thomas and Kyle Williams, recently retired NFL linemen, uh, to help supplement your coverage, not only of who's good on each line, but what exactly happens at the scouting combine. But now, my conversation with Daniel Jeremiah. Back on the Peter King Podcast, really, really happy to be joined by Daniel Jeremiah. Analyst for NFL Network. He also writes for NFL.com. And so for those of you who have um, uh, listened to my podcast uh, for the last three years, and for those of you who have read me in late February, early March, you know that I know nothing about college football, that um, I might have heard of the top ten players in college football, But uh, typical this year, I didn't do a thing on college football until last week. I talked to Lincoln Riley uh, at length uh, for a fairly lengthy um, Kyler Murray profile at the top of my uh, Football Morning in America column at NBCSports.com last Monday. But this week is my typical week before the Combine where i call somebody who knows everything and ask them let me use a brain dump and just tell me everything you know about college football the scouting combine and what's good and what's bad this year and that's why we turn to daniel jeremiah this year now daniel in fairness you basically are going to be taking on a role this year um that is some gigantic shoes to fill uh because clearly mike mayock uh, who preceded you and who got the job as the general manager of the oakland raiders and by the way i'm not sure that's a promotion um <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so anyway i'm very very happy to, uh, that that uh, uh you can join me this year uh daniel and um uh, Uh, I appreciate you giving me some time here as we record this on the Saturday before the scouting combine.
1: Well, it's always a pleasure to to catch up with you, Peter. And I'm glad you mentioned Mike right off the top because, uh, you know, I want to be sure everybody knows just not only how how great Mike was on air and how he was able to explain kind of the scouting world and what goes on through this process uh, to the folks at home. But he, he was a good teammate. You know, he's somebody when I came on, you know, after being in the NFL for eight years on the scouting side and making this transition over to the media and doing the TV thing, Mike was a was a great resource for me. Um, I, I, we've had some some great conversations over the years. That's probably uh, one of the things that I'll miss the most is I, I don't know that we can have the same open conversations right. uh, that we've had over the last six years uh, because Mike's got to protect his cards a little bit now. He's got to keep those cards a little close to the vest. But uh, he is he is as good of a dude as everybody at home thinks he is
0: i agree totally daniel let's start i want people to know a little bit about who you are okay aside from the fact you're 41 years old you're a southern california guy um you were a college quarterback i believe i want you to just give people a brief little bio from college quarterback to uh to scouting to here at nfl network
1: sure i uh you know i grew up in san diego and uh kind of fell through the recruiting cracks a little bit, I ended up going to Northeast Louisiana, which it was known at the time, which is now uh, university of Louisiana Monroe. They changed their name. Uh, but I was a kid who grew up in San Diego and they recruited me and they, their sales pitch was Stan Humphreys who growing up in San Diego, we knew, I knew who he was with the chargers had had played there and Bubby Brister had played there. Doug Peterson uh, with the Philadelphia Eagles had played there. So they had a history of quarterbacks and they knew they are going to chuck the ball. So, I ended up going out there a redshirt year, and I ended up starting, I think, seven games my redshirt freshman year, but we were a 1A independent, which, for those that don't know, we were the money game. So when you see Alabama, and everybody complains about who Alabama's playing on that, that one week in November, uh, those were a lot of the games that we played at Northeast Louisiana. For so who
0: really beat you up that year? Who, who, who abused you that year? Sure. I
1: played, against, uh, I played against Mississippi State. Did okay there. Arkansas, I got, I got hurt on the last play of the game against Arkansas, which was a blessing in disguise because two weeks, I think I missed two weeks, and uh, the first week was Louisiana Tech, which that was okay, and the next week we were playing at Georgia, who was number three or four in the country. Now, this is Richard Seymour. This is Champ Bailey. This is Heinz Ward. Uh, this is not going to be fun. And so I remember coming in there on a Monday, getting some treatment and watching some tape. And I remember talking to the trainer and I, you know, I think I might need another week. I might need (laughs) another week before I can come back and play. And then we got thrashed by uh, Tim Couch and his Kentucky team. Uh, So it was was fun. It was fun. We played against a lot of good guys. Uh, But there was really nothing to play for because we were independent and there's no conference. And I didn't really enjoy that that much. So I literally printed out a top 25 of Division I AA schools so I could transfer and be eligible right away. And I ended up landing at, at Appalachian State and uh, went there and kind of was in and out of the lineup there, sharing that position for three years um, uh, with that group. But I, I love that school. And you'll hear me, everybody knows on, uh, on social media, if you follow me, I'm going to be a big champion of anything that goes
0: on up there at Appalachian You're State. You were at Appalachian State pre-upset of Michigan, right?
1: Yeah, it, which I was, it was bittersweet, Peter, because the, I was at a. I remember where I was. I was in a furniture, a kid's furniture store. Following that game on my phone when they uh, when they beat Michigan, and wow, it was immediate, it was immediate elation. I remember i I went nuts, people looking at me like I, I was way too excited about the bunk bed I was getting ready to <laughs>
0: and,
1: and, and then and then it kind of sunk in. you know while I was there, we beat Wake Forest twice, which they would always talk about, and it was kind of a big deal, and I remember thinking this Michigan win is great, but they are never going to talk about those Wake Forest wins ever again
0: yeah, wow, and as I recall, you also Oh, a debt of gratitude, you've always said, to Chris Mortensen. What's yeah. Chris Mortensen's role in your career?
1: Yeah, so Mort is a, is a family friend. You know, my dad is a is a pastor, and he's on the radio. And Mort had listened to my dad for a long time. And uh, he, he ended up, it was during the 97, I guess it would have been 97 Super Bowl, you would know better than me, with the Packers and the Broncos uh, right. in San Diego. And so Mort had come out to San Diego for the Super Bowl, and he went to my dad's church because he wanted to meet him. Um, which I didn't know any of this. And then I came home for lunch and uh, Chris Mortensen was at the dining table. I was like, what, what in the world is going on here? And so my dad you know, told us the story and, and he became kind of a long family friend. And when I was in college, he, uh, he knew my interest in the draft. I was always interested in the draft even when I was in college. And so he would fly me up to New York and I would answer his phones during the draft. I think I did that for two or three years uh, while I was in college. And and then I got to meet some of the producers there at ESPN. And uh, and one of them was Jay Rothman, who was producing the draft for them, who also has been the producer of, of Monday Night Football. And he had just taken over Sunday Night Football, Peter. So when I graduated from college, he hired me as a production assistant. Wow. And so I traveled around with Joe Theismann and, uh, and Paul McGuire uh, and, and Mike Patrick for two years uh, with that group. And then that was what led into my scouting thing because I was – I was in the, doing a Ravens game, was in the press box. I ran into my brother's college roommate who was a scout with the Ravens uh, named TJ McCray. He's now with the Eagles. Yeah. And, uh, and he asked if, uh, if I'd be interested in scouting. I was like, I've never even, you know, I love the draft, but I've never, never really thought about that. So started thinking about it. I said, you know what, that sounds kind of interesting. So I interned with them at the Combine for the Ravens that year, came back in the spring, interviewed for a job, and, uh, and ended up getting it, and that's what kind of started my scouting
0: career. Wow, that's really amazing. Good for you. You were with the Ravens, the Browns, and the Eagles, and that lasted what, maybe ten years? Yeah, it was
1: eight years. I was four years in Baltimore. Yeah, um, got a nice promotion to go uh, be the national scout for the Cleveland Browns. Uh, was there the first year we went ten and six? I think that was 0-7. The next year, you know, in some injuries, everybody everything kind of fell apart. We went four and twelve, and they kind of wiped out the whole staff. And so during that time, I had a little bit of a break. I got into the media thing. And uh, more, more of all, people told me to start a Twitter, Twitter page. I didn't know anything about Twitter. Yep. Start, a, start a Twitter page and then uh, a Twitter feed. And that kind of grew and started doing some radio interviews. And then that led to doing some TV stuff. And thought I was going to go down the TV road at that point in time. Uh, but then we ended up having the, the, the work stop, which the NFL. There was a lockout, I guess. Um, and, that, and that was kind of a hiring freeze at ESPN at that time. And so I had, to, I had to take a job at scouting, got offered a job with the Cardinals uh, and the, and the uh, Eagles and ended up going back to the Eagles and was there for two years. And halfway through my second year, uh, I had a bro- the broadcasting agent who I hadn't talked to in over a year, said, hey, I've got some opportunities for you if you're interested. And, and that's what led to me leaving the Eagles to take this job with NFL Network.
0: How much of that was the fact that, did you have four children at the time or you have that? Yeah. You, yeah. How much of that was a family decision?
1: Oh, a big part of it was a family decision. It was just getting harder uh, as the kids were getting older and the scouting. There was just so much travel, and right. you get to the point where you try and navigate around the events and the games and the birthdays, and it just becomes a little difficult, you know, as they're getting older. And it was, it was a move I was looking to make, and it was the right time
0: to do it. So. Let's sort of fast forward now to this deal, um, to the scouting combine this year and to the, um, and to the crop as a whole. I think I'll, I'll just start, Daniel, by asking you, give me your view of the strengths, weaknesses, and what you think overall of the 2019 NFL Draft.
1: Yeah, I think it's, you know, look, it depends on what you're looking for. If you are if you're in the hunt for some big bodies and some some uh difference makers on the defensive line and then overall depth on the offensive line, I'd say those are two areas I would start. You're going to you're going to feel great about this draft. Uh, it is really really good. When you look at the especially the top half of the draft, it is loaded with defensive linemen. Inside guys, outside guys, speed guys, power guys. Um, there's a lot to pick from there. And then offensive line-wise, well, there's no no Joe Thomas. There's no Jonathan Ogden. There's no premier, premier offensive lineman. But there's uh, there's just a lot of depth. There's four or five that I think are in that 10 to 15 range uh, in terms of overall talent. And then into the second and third rounds, there's a lot of you depth You mean four to five? Four to five
0: well. Say that again. Four to five offensive linemen in the top 10 to 15?
1: Yeah, okay. I think there's, when I look at it, when I look at it, Peter, I just see in that group, you know, Andre Dillard from Washington State, Jawan Taylor from Florida, uh, Jonah Williams from Alabama, Cody Ford from Oklahoma. I think all those guys kind of slot in and fit into that, you know, ten to twenty range.
0: Right, right. Um, and how do you view this? The overall, uh, the overall quality of this draft versus others.
1: Well, I mean, again, I think if you're if you're in the market, you know, for a quarterback last year's draft you would have been a little more excited about, in my opinion, just the the depth of of top end guys. Um, you know, defensive line, offensive line, tight end wise is is one of the better tight end groups we've we've seen in a while. I don't think receiver wise, I know there's a lot of depth, um, but I don't think there's a Mike Williams or a Corey Davis, those types of guys we were, you know, real excited about leading into those drafts. I don't think there's one of those. And then corner-wise, you know, I don't see a Denzel Ward in here. Um, I see a good group of, you know, late first, early second round type talents. So there's there's depth. There's depth in those positions. I just don't know if we have high-end players at some certain spots.
0: Someone told me a couple of weeks ago that this draft is really, really solid in the second and third rounds so that if you are – And, I mean, I mentioned the Patriots here because they basically have six picks in the second and third rounds. They go six between 32 and 101, just what you need, the rich getting richer. But do you view this as a a pretty deep draft for quality through the, you know, say rounds two and three?
1: Absolutely. You know, and and I look at a team, you know, I'm looking at, at the draft order right now and you look at the Baltimore Ravens picking at 22, they have no second-round pick. They traded that last year for Lamar Jackson. To me, if they pick at 22, Peter, I will, uh, I will buy you a dinner the next time we're together uh, because I know Eric DaCosta taking over there for Ozzy Newsom is a very bright guy, and the value in this draft is in that second-round range. So to me, not having a pick in there is tough in this year's draft. So I would be surprised a team like that doesn't take pick 22 and look to get out of there and see if they can collect some more picks there in that second round range.
0: Yeah. Um, So tell me, let's go to quarterbacks. You sent me your top 50 and, um, and I'll run that. I'll run down just the, the, the quarterback element for it. You had Kyler Murray, number 14, the quarterback from Oklahoma. You had Dwayne Haskins of Ohio state, uh, at number 18. Uh, then you go down to number 26 Drew Locke from Missouri and number 32, Duke's Daniel Jones. So that's probably obviously a little bit less in terms of quality, certainly in terms of quantity compared to last year when there were five in the first round. Give me your sort of rundown, your maybe your your Cliffs Notes version of each of those four guys.
1: Sure. You know, I, uh, I just updated that. So I, as soon as I updated it, I sent it to you. Uh, so we would have it for this conversation, but, uh, that's, I know it'll be, it'll be rolling out here quickly. And that, that to me, the quarterback position, when I did my first list, the, the initial one, I didn't know what to do with Kyler Murray. I had, at that one time I watched three games on him. I don't know if he's going to play outfield for the A's. I don't know if he's going to try and play both sports or is he going to commit just to football? There's so much unknown. Um, and then as I began to to dig in and study him, I thought, okay, my two major concerns with this kid, number one, um, is, is focus and commitment. You know, is he going to be all in on football? I don't think you can play that position and juggle it. You know, it's one thing for Dion and and Bo Jackson at those positions. I think it's impossible at the quarterback position. So that was my biggest concern. My second concern with Kyler Murray was just the bulk. You know, I had heard he weighed 182 pounds, 185 pounds. Right. Even more so than him being five foot nine, that was that was a concern to me. Is this kid going to be able to hold up uh, physically? I,
0: I wrote last I wrote last week that he's. Uh, it's not just that he's short, but that he's got the build of Mookie Betts you know which which would <laughs> which would which would really worry me because if you sidle up to Russell Wilson who's less than an inch taller than than Kyler Murray you sidle up to Russell Wilson and you say hey how you doing you sort of clap him on the shoulder you're clapping steel you know and again i i have i have no idea because i don't know Kyler Murray i've never met him i've never stood next to him but on tv he looks like a string bean
1: yeah it's interesting because you know, I remember scouting Russell Wilson, and I remember in my report, I wrote that he was built like a wrestler.
0: Yeah, that's cool. A little cool. bit shorter,
1: but he was compact and a very, very sick guy. Um, when you go back and look at him, when he came out and you look at, at what he ended up weighing, he, he weighed in, he was 5'10 and 5'8, he weighed 204, you know, coming out of college. Now, I think he's packed on some more weight since then. I'd say he's probably more in the 215 range. Right. Um, but I reached out and was trying to do some homework getting ready for the combine to find out how, how big is this kid? So I was told by somebody very close to him that he, on that day, and this is about a week ago, that Kyler Murray weighed 203 pounds. So if he shows up, that's terrific for
0: him. That's terrific.
1: That's big. That is big news for him, especially if he were to run. I don't know if he'll throw, uh, but if he goes out there and you see him carry that speed that you see on tape and he's carrying 200 plus pounds, then my two biggest concerns, Peter, are, are, are answered. I mean, the kid's committed to, committed to football. He's, uh, he's done with baseball. And by the way, my free advice to Kyler would be, if you go in the interviews and they ask you about your commitment, you know, hey, how do we know you're committed? I would carry a photocopy of the check you had to write back to the Oakland A's in my pocket. Yeah. And I good. would hand it to everybody in the room. And say this is my commitment. It's <laughs> a pretty strong commitment.
0: Can I tell you a very quick story about an experience yeah. I had with Jameis Winston four years ago? So sure. I was writing about him coming out of the combine, and I spent some time with him on Saturday afternoon after he finished uh, his uh, uh, after he finished his workout. He was on his way out of town, all that. So we talked, and he told me flat out that he really was interested in pursuing in the off season, maybe being a closer for somebody, you know, uh, trying to be a little bit Deion Sanders-ish. And so I wrote that, and uh, I knew what was going to happen because I called uh, Jason Light, who, as the general manager of the Bucks, was going to have to make this call. And I called Jason Light, and I told him. And uh, then I come to find out that Jason Light called his agent's Um, you know, before, uh, I think even before I wrote and basically said, now, if this is true, this is going to have a significant impact on the choice we make at the top of the draft. We don't want a part-time quarterback. You're not going to be able to do this. And so that's when he said, okay, I'll forget baseball, but I've always thought to this, to this day, to this moment that if, and Jameis Winston has had a very in and out career, that if he flunked out of football, if he Tebowed out of football for some reason, that I think he would do exactly what Tim Tebow is doing right now, and he'd be in a major league camp tomorrow trying to make some team as a closer.
1: Yeah, that is, that is fascinating. It does not surprise me in the least that once that information got out, that it was a, a deterrent. It was kind the of NFL toxic. Teams. Yeah, <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah.
1: Yes, they're not going to do that. So you know, when I look at Kyler Murray as just a football player. You know, the the, the words that kind of, I just, when you look down at your paper and you see the same words over and over and over again, and to me it was just sudden, twitched up, explosive. You know, the ball jumps out of his hand. Um, he has got a big arm. He can make every single throw that you need to make. Um, the hype thing, you know, to get into that real quick, you know, when I, when I study him and I don't really see it being too much of an issue. The one time that I thought he struggled. When you watch the first half of the Alabama game, Right, the pressure got on him. Everything kind of collapsed on him a little bit. And I thought he had a little bit – he lost his poise. There was a little bit of panic Agreed, in there. yeah. And you kind of – I remember right now in the paper. can he see? You know, has, has, the, has he been in a well? You know, sometimes you feel like you're in a well and you just can't see out of there. He was panicking. He was trying to get out of there um, prematurely. And then actually, in his in his defense, I thought he really settled down after that and i saw in that second half of that game even though they didn't win he showed that he could function in a, in a little bit more of a chaotic environment that's not something he has a lot of experience with um you know when you look at that oklahoma offensive line with four draft picks in this year's draft class you can go back i did my homework on it peter you go back to high school you know he, he won three state championships people say maybe the best high school football player in texas history he's kind of a legend there yeah um when you go back and, and look at it, I had my guy Jack at NFL Network who's been helping me with some research. I said, How good was that team he was on? Because both of those tackles, Bobby Evans was a tackle there. He's, he's a tackle at Oklahoma, he's, he's in this draft. Um, he had another tackle. Uh, Greg Little at Old Miss was his other tackle. On those teams, why he was there over three years, there were 29 Division One players.
0: Holy on cow! Wow.
1: Six wide receivers, eight offensive linemen. This is the high school. Wow. This is Allen High School, which I'm sure you've heard.
0: Oh, that big like stadium 60 million, there. Yeah.
1: $60 million stadium, 18,000-seat yeah. uh, stadium. So uh, it, it was kind of fun kind of going down this this trail with him. But it, it, what I'm getting at is he has not had to play behind a bad team. And if you get picked early on in the draft, he's going to have to function in more chaos uh, than point. he's ever had to play in. So that'll be, that'll be a challenge.
0: I will say this for him. And this comes from my conversation with Lincoln Riley as he said, you know, he's always been good and he's always played behind guys in high school and college football who've been significantly bigger than he was. You know, his college line is 64 65 mm-hmm. 65 65 64. So, uh, he's he's always been in the in the forest. But I find it really, really interesting that, in three hundred and seventy seven pass attempts in two thousand and eighteen, he got five balls batted down. Dwayne Haskins had twelve. And so I'm not and again, i'm not I'm not saying Haskins not going to make it or anything. but I'm just saying that this guy seems to have figured out how to play at five nine and five ace or whatever he is,
1: yeah, and he can he can alter his his release point when he gets some pressure. He's always up on his toes, which a lot of times you don't want to see that in a quarterback. You want to see him grind their cleats into the ground when you throw because you just get more power uh, right. when you're grounded. He's always up on his toes, and he'll throw the ball up on his toes, and he still has plenty of velocity. You can kind of see some of that baseball uh, influence in there that way. The other thing that the one thing the myth I wanted to spell too is a lot of people have said, and I've heard people say, "Well, you draft Kyler Murray, you're going to live in you know live in the shotgun, and that's a good thing because the NFL has gone to more shotgun." I don't think there's any truth to that. You look at who are the three short quarterbacks in the NFL right now. Drew Brees, Baker Mayfield, Russell Wilson. Yeah. Drew Brees was fifth in the NFL in terms of snaps under center last year. Mayfield, after taking 43 snaps in college at Oklahoma in 2017, 288 snaps last year under center, 19th in the league. Russell Wilson, 300 snaps, which was 26th. But to me, when you have a shorter quarterback, the best thing you can do for him is to create distance between him and the line of scrimmage. One way you do that is off-play action. So if you get a team that can really run the football um, and then you can set up deeper in the pocket, you can see. And that was, you know, Russell Wilson played behind a huge offensive line at Wisconsin. And, but when you study them, was a lot of distance between him and the line of scrimmage. And you see the same thing at Oklahoma. I mean, they're huge, but he creates distance between them. And that's one of the things you can do to help a shorter quarterback see.
0: You have a feeling how high he'll go in the draft?
1: Oh, I think he's going to go high, man. I, I really do. I just, you know, I
0: struggle. Top six, eight, what?
1: I, I just the team. I, I keep looking at, and I just you try and say, okay, who? There's two ways to look at it. Who, who could take him, right? Who could take him? And the other way to look at it is who can't pass on him. And when I look at Jacksonville at number seven, right? I just don't know. Can Jacksonville pass on him with what they have in place? You know, when you get healthy on the offensive line, they get Cam Robinson back. You know, last year, uh, they, they, you know, with, with Cam Robinson healthy, I think they were the number one rushing offense in the league. They fell to, like, 19th or 20th, somewhere in that range without him. You know, you get Fournette going. You run the ball. Your defense has too many good players not to play better. Um, you get your defense going. You just need your quarterback to be able to, to make five plays a game, you know, kind of like what Russell Wilson did when he came into the league.
0: Let me ask you a theoretical question. What if you're the Oakland Raiders and you're John Gruden, as I have heard, who loves Kyler Murray? Let's say for the sake of argument, if you were Jacksonville, would you trade your 2020 first-round pick to the Oakland Raiders for Derek Carr?
1: So your 2020, and they still have another first-round pick next year as well, right? Yes. I think they have two first-rounders in 2020. Yeah, I mean golly you you would you would so you would come away with this with Derek
0: Carr you you'd, would come away, you'd come away you'd come away with Derek Carr and you'd still have the seventh pick in the draft my whole theory is I'm not sure sh- this year yes that's right that's right I am not sure right now I and so in other words you'd get Kyler Murray and you'd still have two ones down in the 20s okay the only reason I suggest next year's Jacksonville won. is that I'm not sure that Jacksonville would or should trade the seventh pick in the draft for Derek Carr, who's been good, but I'm not sure he's been great. You know, he's had one really good year, I think, but, but, and, and how great would it be if you're Oakland, you know, to have a, you know, to have an extra one again next year, you know, and, and have a rich first round again, uh in two thousand twenty. That's that would be my only I've I've thought about that. If I were John Gruden and I liked Kyler Murray as much as I hear that he does, would I do that? And I think I probably would do it.
1: It's interesting because, you know, when you look at the team building aspect of it and kind of just get outside the, the vacuum of the draft and look at it, you know, kind of from a big picture. Okay, the formula, everybody talks about it, right? The formula to win right now, we've seen over the last several years, Tom Brady and the Patriots being the outlier, uh, but all the success of these teams building around a rookie quarterback on a rookie deal. And if you're Oakland and you're trying to time this thing up for when you get into Las Vegas so that when you get there, you can hit the ground running and, and, and be ready to roll, it makes some sense if you took that the car number off the books, you replace it with the rookie deal, and now you can be as active as you want to be in, in free agency, as well as all these other picks you're going to have to try and to try and you know build this thing up for when you get to Las Vegas. And and having that lower rookie number is a, it's a big piece of the building process that a lot of teams are looking at
0: right now. How interesting would it be for Kyler Murray to step foot on the Oakland Coliseum turf as the quarterback of the Raiders and not the center fielder of the A's?
1: <laughs> that's, that's, that's that's a great point i don't know if even thought about that the one thing the one thing though you have to do you have to do and, and uh is i we had mayock on uh nfl network right after he'd get hired and we did an interview with him and mike was great but i asked him i have to go back and get the transcript but i asked him i said mike you know the teams i've worked with you know, we knew kind of what a Raven player looked like. Um, you know, the Eagles have their type of guy. When Andy Reid was there when I was with him, we knew what we were looking for. I said, what is an Oakland Raider? What does that look like? And the first words out of his mouth, Peter, I have to go back and listen to it, but I believe he said, big, physical, and tough. Yep. And I, I'm sitting here thinking like, okay, the first word is big, and and that ain't Kyler Murray. Right. You know, if you're looking yep. for kind of the, of the team of you know, big physical guys, but... He's an outlier, and he's a difference maker, and and we both know how John Gruden can kind of fall in love with some of these guys. So ah, who knows? I guess all options are on the table. I know one thing. Mike's not going to show his hand.
0: Right, right. He's good at that. All right, let's go to Dwayne Haskins. Thoughts on him?
1: Yeah. Yeah, Haskins to me is just kind of a a pure pocket passer, and I think if he were to have come out 10 years ago, we'd be talking about him as a surefire top five pick. But uh, the one area where he kind of struggles with is he just doesn't move around very well. You know, he's he's somebody that they've, you know, you watch the Maryland game, you'll see some rushing touchdowns, he's tough, um, and some short yardage things. But he's not, and nothing he does is real sudden. So when he's on time, in rhythm, he can drive the ball, he throws with touch, accuracy. Um, I, I like the fact he's worked through the full field of reads. You won't see somebody that's just you know, one read in one side of the field. I like that they let him read the whole field. I think mentally he is extremely sharp. He's got a great arm. But when he has to move off of his spot, he really struggles. He'll take sacks. He's just not going to be able to get himself out of a lot of trouble. And when you look at kind of where the league is gone, the the successful and mobile quarterbacks for the most part are the the thirty plus guys that have the that have the experience and the knowledge base to be able to overcome that. Most of the younger quarterbacks that are having success, they've got to be able to move around at least a little bit. While they're trying to to learn everything and process everything, you've got to be able to have some of that natural suddenness to be able to escape some things that maybe your mind will be able to escape once you've had some more starts, but you need your athleticism to help you a little bit when you're younger.
0: Drew Locke, Missouri.
1: He's got a huge arm. Um, I mean, you could put together his top – Ten throws and they'll be as good as any you'll ever see. I mean, he can. Uh, you know, we talk about hole shots. You know, cover two. Can you fit the ball in between the safety and the corner on the sideline, twenty yards down the field, twenty-five yards down the field on a line? And he puts some of those on tape that, that you'll your jaw will drop. I mean, he's got big time arm talent. Now the problem is his feet. His feet kind of are all over the place. Something he's got to continue to work on is uh, is to get his eyes connected to his feet. So when his eyes you know, see a change and he moves off of one to another, sometimes his feet don't follow him. So he's got to continue to hone that in and, and work on that. And then, uh, you know, I think just being maybe touch a touch less aggressive. You don't want to you know, take away his aggressiveness, but just maybe reel it in a little bit.
0: Um, And now the Duke quarterback, Daniel yeah. Jones.
1: Yeah, Daniel Jones, first thing I'll say about Daniel Jones is, uh, he is tough. I mean, he's had some injuries. He's come back much earlier than, than people anticipated. Uh, he'll hang in the pocket versus pressure. He is somebody that, while he's not real sudden or explosive, he's a tremendous athlete. They'll use him on, on some design quarterback runs. You'll see him take off on, on draws, and he, can, and he can scoot once he gets going. Um, he's probably going to run at the combine in like the four seven range. He's a good athlete. Um, he's somebody that's under Coach Cutcliffe, is, is a, is a big-time influence who coached Peyton and Eli. So you know he's going to be able to swallow an NFL playbook. He's going to be great from that standpoint. He's got He's more of a touch passer than a power passer. So in terms of really driving the ball and sticking the ball in those tight windows, that's probably the one area of, uh, of concern there. Uh, but being able to read defense and get the ball where it's supposed to be uh, that's something that he does very well, and I know teams are split on him. Uh, there's some teams that really, really like him, and uh, and are high on him, and other teams have some concerns. So uh, I think his grade will be a little bit mixed around the league.
0: In our last few minutes, I want to ask you some specific questions about guys I've seen a little bit of and positions. First, I thought I was, hu- or I was hugely impressed watching. Um, you know, watching some games of uh, of Kyler Murray, hugely impressed with Marquise Brown, hugely impressed with their receiving core as a whole. Just really, mm-hmm. really good. But Marquise Brown now with a foot injury. What are you hearing about him? And how 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 far does this drop him in the draft? Having that, uh, it's a Liz Frank injury, am I right?
1: yep yeah, yeah to Liz Frank, and uh he already had the surgery. I was told that uh, he'll be doing some some light running before the draft. he won't be able to you know run a forty or do any of the testing uh, before the draft, but the what I've been told is doctors have said that he'll be up and, and, and ready to go for the start of train camp in, uh, in August, I guess is what their target was for him to be. And it seemed to be, you know, he went to the top guy. It's crazy in the scouting world. You kind of hear names of doctors and you know, like, oh, yeah, he went to the right guy. Okay, he right. went to the, to the best guy. I think it was Dr. Anderson maybe is who it was. Uh, but uh, but everything looks like it should be tracking there. He's a unique talent. I mean, he, he reminds me, I remember scouting Deshaun Jackson at Cal, and this, this is a clone. I mean, he's 175 pounds. He's, you know, if you put a watch on him, he would run in the four threes. Um, He just, he is a dynamic, dynamic player. I think I had him ninth uh, before the injury. And I'm like, you know, okay, well, this is, you know, to Liz Frank, that's not good. I got to drop him a little bit. And then I got as far as 13 and I was like, I can't, I can't drop this kid. Yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? So that's where I stopped. He's, he's a special player. I talked to somebody during the fall about Kyler Murray and I asked him, I said, uh, hey, what's your thoughts on the Oklahoma quarterback? and he goes, "Man, I've seen I've been to all my schools already. He's the second fastest football player I've seen this year. The only guy faster than him is the one he's throwing it to."
0: Wow, Marquise Brown. Interesting. You had only one running back in your top 40. Would you say yeah. it's a weak year for running backs or do you subscribe to the theory that hey, you know, the the rushing champion Two years ago, Kareem Hunt was drafted in the 80s. The offensive rookie of the year two years ago, Alvin Kamara, was drafted in the 60s. So you can get your back down the line.
1: Yeah, there's going to be a lot of options in that second, third round range of this draft. I mean, I think it's a good group of running backs. I don't think, you know, I I love Josh Jacobs from Alabama. He's the one I have up there in the top 10. You know, and and people kind of going to ding him even because he doesn't have a lot of touches. Um, There was a lot of backs. They rotated through there at Alabama, but that kid to me is he's got some real special qualities that remind me of, of Alvin Kamara coming out of uh, coming out of Tennessee. So I went ahead and put him up there, but outside of him, Peter, I got a group of guys kind of clumped in together and I'll, I'll even give you some of the names here, but uh, Devin Singletary from Florida Atlantic, David Montgomery from Iowa state, you know, Rodney Anderson from Oklahoma, unfortunately he's had injuries. If not for injuries, he would be a, a top 50 pick. Damien Harris from Alabama is another one. Daryl
0: Henderson from Memphis.
1: Uh, all those guys what about the Penn State really yeah, really good What about
0: the Penn State? I, like,
1: I yeah. like Miles Sanders He's yeah. in that right in that next tier for me, and there's right. some teams that really like Miles Sanders, like early early in the second round type uh, love for him. Elijah Holyfield's an interesting guy yeah uh, from Georgia who who I got a great note when I was talking to some folks down there. I said, tell me about Elijah Holyfield. And they said, if you came out to practice and I told you one of the kids on this field is the son of a heavyweight champion, it wouldn't take you 30 seconds to find him.
0: <laughs> That's really interesting. The um, last thing I'll ask you, who's the best player in the draft and why?
1: For me, I, I think it's it's Bosa. You know, I, I know the injury this year and missing some time. And, and even over the last few years, they've been so deep and had so many guys. He's You know, he's rolled through there. He hasn't been on the field every single snap, but... I get a chance doing these Charger games this year uh, to see his brother. And when I watch Nick, I see the exact same moves. I see the exact same hand usage. He's not quite as tall as Joey, uh, but just there's a natural feel to the game. And especially as a pass rusher, uh, he has it. So to me, he's, he's the top guy with Quinn and Williams from Alabama uh, who is right on his heels. To me, those are the top two.
0: I'm curious about the Kentucky uh, linebacker, Josh Allen, yeah. because a lot of people view him as a, uh, you know, it, they're not sure whether he's going to be sort of a stand up guy, uh, whether he's going to be or, or maybe a classic defensive end. I mean, what do you see him being in the NFL, Josh Allen?
1: Yeah, you know, it reminds me a lot studying him, and he's my third player. It reminds me a lot when Anthony Barr was coming out of UCLA. Yeah. Because if you talk to three different teams, Peter, they have some that pat him as a defensive end, some that thought he was going to be an off-the-ball linebacker, other teams thought he was a three-4 stand-up outside linebacker. It's really, to me, it's a compliment to the player, because the skill set they possess means they can do a lot of different things. And um, the best thing he does two things extremely well, in my opinion. You watch him rush the quarterback when he's got a little bit of a runway. I like him standing up to main is best. Uh, on the edge standing up and you'll see him win with a lot of speed and he's athletic he can beat you with a counter move he's got good hands he's not a real you know violent guy real physical uh rusher he's more of a a bend and burst type rusher so he rushes really well the other thing he does really well is he can cover which is a huge Hmm. asset when you look at the tight ends i mean you look at the kelseys and and the gronks and on and on and on you got to deal with in this league he you watch him against texas and great example uh, Jay Sternberger is a tight end who's probably going to go in the third round, maybe even the second round. And he's he, they're about the 30-yard line going in, and he's mirroring him on a corner route and knocks the ball away, you know, 25 yards down the field. So you've got a guy that can rush. You've got a guy that can cover. Now, in the run game, yeah, there's going to be times where he's going to get moved around a little bit, and, and you're going to probably wish you had a little bit more strength there against the run. But way the NFL game is played right now, and you give me somebody that can rush and cover, I'll take it.
0: Daniel Jeremiah, this has been a lot of fun. I really, really appreciate you taking all the time educating me on the draft. I now feel like I know one-tenth of one percent of what I need to know for this, but I never would have known it without you, so I appreciate it a lot.
1: Well, it's going to be a lot of fun, Peter. I always enjoy uh,
0: catching up and visiting with you, and we'll catch up soon. Sounds good, and and look forward to seeing you out in Indianapolis.
1: Thanks, man. Be easy on the cocktail sauce at uh, at Elmo's.
0: I will. Thank you. Support for the Peter King Podcast comes from Wix.com. With Wix, you can create your very own professional website. Choose a template you love and customize it by adding your own text, images, and videos. With hundreds of intuitive design features, you can tell your story exactly the way you want. Want even more for your website? You can easily start a blog, launch an online store, or create an event. Share everything in a click on social media and drive even more traffic to your site with SEO tools to get found on Google. Wix has all the tools you need to create the exact website you want. You can even create a beautiful website while listening to this podcast. Over 140 million people choose Wix to create their website. So create yours today. Get started now. Go to Wix.com. That's wix.com slash Peter King to get 10% off. That's wix.com slash Peter King.
1: Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply.
2: For the world's greatest athletes. This is the showdown we've been waiting for. There is nothing like competing on the world's biggest stage. To win again. Good for the United States. Unbelievable. And when that stage is Paris, anything can happen.
0: I have never seen it
2: in Olympics unlike any other. What a performance! The Paris Olympics, this summer on
0: NBC and streaming on Peacock. And now my conversation with Matt Miller of Bleacher Report. Back on the Peter King Podcast, happy to be joined by Matt Miller of Bleacher Report. He's, he's their NFL draft analyst. He also hosts the wildly successful and he told me to say that stick to football <laughs> podcast. Um, and I will say this about the stick to football podcast. It's a lot better than this podcast because he has beer koozies that say stick to football on them. So this is a lucky, lucky man, Matt Miller.
2: Hey, Peter, I'll bring one to Indy for you. Oh, I I'm, excited. I could do. I'm excited. I'm excited. I'm excited. All the help that you've been to me in my career, oh. the least I could do is get you some koozies.
0: <laughs> A koozie would be wonderful, but thanks so much. <laughs> hey, so Matt, as we sort of head into, by the time people hear this, it'll be Wednesday morning. They'll have their eyes focused, uh, laser focused on the NFL scouting combine. So tell me, just in your eyes, how good is this draft? Good draft. Where is the draft strong? Where is it weak? Give me your little Cliff's Notes version and rundown of the 2019 NFL draft.
2: You know, the draft's a lot better than I thought it was going to be back in September. I remember looking at my list in September thinking, oh my goodness, this is not a good year for quarterbacks, receivers, offensive tackles, cornerbacks. Like, where are we going to find the talent? And now that it's you know, mid to late April, like the talent is there. So I actually think this is a very good draft. It is deep at the defensive line and outside rusher, the edge rusher position, which we knew that coming into the year, you know, guys like Nick Bosa from Ohio state, Josh Allen from Kentucky, uh, Ed Oliver at Houston, Rashawn Gary at Michigan. Those were names that we knew, you know, six months ago, they were going to be the top players in this draft. So it's also been nice that there have been guys who have been a surprise like Quinn and Williams at Alabama, who, I think has a chance to be the first pick in the draft. He's a, a fantastic player. So the, the strength is still the front four on defense, but it's really been bolstered too by a good running back class. Josh Jacobs from Alabama is one of the, my favorite running backs I've seen in a, a long time. And now we have some quarterbacks to talk about because of one-year starters in Kyler Murray at Oklahoma and Dwayne Haskins at Ohio State, where traditionally one-and-done type guys, you don't, you don't get excited about football as much. We thought it would be, Daniel Jones and Drew Locke. but these two first-year starters were so electric. They're both Heisman candidates. Uh, he- Kyler Murray took home the trophy, so they have added some some star power to the draft. But they've also put depth in at a position that I mean, you know, is incredibly important.
0: So I I, I had Daniel Jeremiah on the show earlier, and I asked him about uh, about Kyler Murray. Um, I wrote about Murray last week in my column, and one of the things that I found interesting is that, A, he had thrown 89% of his passes from the pocket last year at Oklahoma, Um, so basically all but about 39 of his passes out of 370— Uh, were from the pocket. And then number two, I thought it was interesting. He only had five balls batted down last year, which is less than the more mountainous guys like Haskins of Ohio State. So what's your your belief about Kyler Murray, and how much do you think teams are going to be scared off, not just by the height, but maybe by his build?
2: Yeah, I think that's the biggest question is the build. And and the combine will be important for him, not not if he runs the 40-yard dash. Uh, Anyone could watch him play at Oklahoma and tell you he's really, really fast. Uh, And I don't even think by, you know, if he goes out and throws on the field, I don't know that that would help him so much because, like you said, he was – prolific at Oklahoma in a system that we just saw make Baker Mayfield ready to play in the NFL and almost win rookie of the year with a head coaching change at midseason so I look at Tyler and that is the key to me uh, is he going to come in as reported at about five nine and seven eights is he going to be the 205 pounds that his agent said he was I, I think that's the key is how big is he because you know I watched every throw that he made last year and I'm glad that you brought that up in your article that was refreshing for me to read that I think he's been stereotyped as a guy who has to win outside the pocket when that wasn't necessarily his game. But I saw a guy that just did not take hits. And he played you know, played the University of Texas twice. That was a very good defense that he faced with some very good pass rushers. They couldn't get a clean hit on him. Even when they were able to corral him, he's so slippery and elusive. And, and I hate to make this comparison, but I'll, I'm going to do it. It's like Barry Sanders. He's just so hard to truly get a hat on that, yeah, he's going to get tackled. He's going to get tripped up by the ankle a lot more, though, than he's going to get you know rocked because this the strike zone on him is just so small. It, it's different than a guy like Lamar Jackson last year, where you know you're six three and you're you're just so lanky that's a, a big open target. And we saw him take some hard hits this year. When I watch Kyler play, it's more like Michael Vick, where you know you're just you know in that shorter shorter size and you you kind of do have a thick body, especially in the lower body, and and you're a hard player to hit because. He's able to turn on the gas and get away from you when you do close on him. But then again, it's if you're a six foot five defensive end, it's pretty hard to get low enough to hit a guy who's five ten and to hit him cleanly when he's fast enough to run away from you.
0: I, I think the other interesting part of this, Matt, honestly, is that I, I and I wrote this last week that um, you know, in my opinion. He was done a tremendous favor by Lincoln Riley, as coach at Oklahoma, because as I wrote, um, Lincoln Riley had Michael Vick on his hands and he coached him like Carson Wentz. You know, not not that, hey, you shouldn't run, but when you run, a lot of your runs are going to be designed runs. It's not going to be you getting out of the pocket, looking around, looking around, and then running. Um and and I think that that was a really smart way to coach this guy to get him ready for the NFL. And when I talked to Riley about that last week, one of the things he said is that he said I I coached him just like Baker Mayfield and I coach Baker Mayfield like a pocket quarterback. So I and 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 I think I think that what's happening right now is that You know, when I started in this business, a lot of it was the NFL is, uh, you know, colleges are are following the NFL. And now I think a lot of stuff scheme-wise, design-wise, idea-wise is originating in college football and filtering up to the NFL.
2: I think so, too, with improvements. You know, I mean... Think about when Tom Brady started his run with the Patriots, the type of offense they ran versus the kind of offense they ran throughout this season or what the Kansas City Chiefs have evolved to become under Andy Reed, where it was just straight West coast offense, even back when he had Donovan McNabb and he always liked a little bit of mobility at quarterback, but a lot of the elements that we see now, whether it's something as simple as a pistol formation or, you know, all the RPOs that have taken over the league the last two years, that definitely has its foundation Uh, in college football, especially most recently. So when I look at Kyler Murray, I don't have a lot of the concerns that I would have even had, I think three years ago of, oh my gosh, this guy played in a spread offense in the Big 12 where there's no defense, no one hits, and he he just throws outside the hashes, not to the middle of the field. But that that really has changed. And I, I even think now with him, some of the middle of the field stuff, projecting it to the NFL is probably where I would have the most concerns about him. But that's much better than saying, you know, where we had these stereotypes of, okay, he's too short. And I, I think we can thank Drew Brees and Russell Wilson and Baker Mayfield for changing that narrative. And then also the how he plays in this gimmicky spread offense. Like Sean McVay is running a lot of the same plays that Lincoln Riley is and using some of the same window dressing in terms of formation and pre snap movement. So it's it's nice to see that we're I think we're really getting to a point where like the best players will just go to the NFL and, and continue to be good players. There's not as much hand-wringing anymore about what type of scheme you play in or what conference you played in in college.
0: I'm with Matt Miller, Bleacher Report. He's their NFL draft analyst. He also does the Stick to Football podcast. Matt, I want to ask you what you get out of the scouting combine. Sometimes I think that the best stuff you get at the scouting combine is the conversations you have in the hallways, in the hotel lobbies, you know, when you see people at bars or restaurants um, and, and not necessarily the the canned 15-minute conversations that that the prospects have in the media room. I, and I wonder, what do you use the Combine for and what do you think of it?
2: You know, when I first started going to the Combine eight years ago, I, I didn't know better. And I used it for those 15-minute conversations at a, a round table with 12 other writers. But as you get further along and and you're definitely, you know, the godfather of this, I can just call that player now and talk to him for 30 minutes. I don't, I don't have to, to use the combine for those very impersonal interviews. So for me, it is a lot of the conversations, you know, knowing which restaurants to go to at three o'clock in the morning so that you can talk to GMs and scouts. Um, And then also I I like the drills. I really do. You know, I, I have a problem right now with my cornerback and wide receiver rankings. I can't decide which guy I like best. So the combine will help me. I like to use it as a tiebreaker. That was something that very early on in my career, I had some great mentors who taught me that, you know, don't, don't let the combine make a decision for you, but let it be a tiebreaker. If you have DK Metcalf and AJ Brown from Ole Miss ranked side by side, look at the combine and not just the 40 yard dash, but the, the short shuttle, watch them catch the ball, watch them run routes and let that help you make your decision. If you, after watching a season or two or three of, of game film, if you can't if you can't decide who you like best, so I, that's what I'll do. I'll, I'll watch the drills closely, but you know the, the the media center and the the atmosphere in there has changed so much over the last almost decade for me. But I, I value tremendously those you know the walks through the the skywalk so that we're not freezing to death down on the streets, going from one restaurant or bar to another, trying to steal five or ten minutes with a GM or a director, of player personnel, or even Some of the more prolific agents who are there and might have, you know, 10 guys that are going to be top 50 picks, you can really get some some good info from them as far as, you know, where their player's projected to be, what issues they might have, you know, if something's going to come up off the field or injury related. That's all the the type of information that's really, really valuable
0: to me. Who's the best player in the draft? It's Nick Bosa.
2: It it really is. And it's a shame that he got hurt this year because I think that we're in this, this time frame now where. It's like a microwave society, right? We all want everything right now. And and for him, you have to go back to early October to watch him play. But he's tremendous, um, you know, and the bloodlines are amazing. His dad was a first-round pick. His brother was a first-round pick. And and I tend to believe that he's better than his brother. I think he's more explosive, a little more athletic overall. So he, he's a fantastic player, and, and you know that, that he knows how to handle himself as a pro football player. You're not going to have to worry about what happens the first time that you know, when he gets a, a ton of money and is, is free to do what he wants with it, you don't have to worry about how he's going to battle back from an injury. If he's going to become complacent, uh, a lot of the off-field you know boxes that we have to check with players, you really don't have to worry about with Nick Bosa. So that that helps. And on top of the fact that he's just really, really good at football.
0: If you had to go to Vegas right now and put five dollars down on the team in late April that drafts Kyler Murray, what who would you put the five bucks down on?
2: I would put it on the Arizona Cardinals just because I love chaos. And I, man, for some reason, (laughs) and I know you talk to more people than I do, but, you know, you talk to, you talk to guys who are really plugged in around the NFL and no one will come straight out and say, nah, they're not going to draft him. And and so until, until they make the pick of Quentin Williams or Nick Bosa or Josh Allen, I'm I'm holding on to hope that that happens because I would love the chaos factor. If I had $10 to bet, I would probably throw another five down uh, on a team like, the Washington Redskins, maybe they would have to trade up a little bit to get him from where they are at 15, but that seems like an organization that that, you know they've got two quarterbacks of broken legs right now. They have to figure something out, and and he's the type of guy, when you look at that division of, okay, how the heck are we going to beat these teams in the NFC East? You're going to need a difference maker at that position, and that's definitely what Kyler Murray is.
0: Speaking of chaos, how great would it be if John Gruden traded Derek Carr to the Jacksonville Jaguars? and drafted Kyler Murray number four overall. And how great would it be if he was cavorting on the Oakland Coliseum turf come September for the Oakland Raiders instead of the Oakland Days. Would you like that? that. Would that be chaotic enough for you, Matt?
2: (laughs) That's almost too good to be true, right? You can tell you're a writer. You know, it's like, oh, let's do it. But, you know, I I have heard, and I'm sure you have too, that, you know, who knows what's going to happen there. I think Kyler Murray makes a lot of people excited where if you're stuck in that, Quarterback purgatory. You know, if you're the Bengals and Andy Dalton's gotten you to the playoffs a couple of times, but you know he's never going to get you any farther. Why not take a chance on a guy who, you know, two years ago we were all joking about the Chiefs taking Patrick Mahomes and what was he ever, you know, was he going to be able to acclimate and, and be able to make the plays in the NFL that he did in college? And now he's the league MVP and the Chiefs are one of the most popular teams in the league. So I think sometimes you got to take a chance when you have a decent quarterback that's just got you stuck. And if the Raiders feel that way, then. Man, I would love for uh, you know, my old my old peer, Mike Mayock to make some moves like that. It would be a lot of fun.
0: Matt Miller, you're the best. I really really appreciate you taking time and educating people about the 2019 draft.
2: Absolutely anytime and I'll I'll look you up in Indy and get you that koozie, No problem.
0: Thanks to my guests, Daniel Jeremiah of NFL Network and Matt Miller of Bleacher Report. If you enjoyed these conversations, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes in my podcast series, such as my conversations with Russell Wilson, John Elway, and Tom Brady. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. You can also hear the Peter King Podcast on Sirius XM Radio every Saturday morning at 7 Eastern, on Mad Dog Sports Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 82. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work. And thanks, of course, to my sponsor this week, Wix. Please support Wix the way they support this podcast. And I'll see you next week.